Hey, it's Seeking Plum. So in early February, you may remember that I did an episode entitled something to the effect of people-centric city design. I pondered all kinds of things from what would a city look like if there were no cars to moving transportation beneath ground to we talked about drones carrying us around using more bicycles or anything like that more organic architecture, more beautiful places to wander through. Well, over the last few weeks, I ran into a couple of articles that brought me back to that episode. As usual, I'll link to these in the show notes. The first one has to do with the layout and structure of a city and how that has an effect on the temperature at night. So scientists have classified cities into two groups. And those are crystals and liquids. If your city was deemed a crystal, that would be because if you zoomed into the nanoscale of what a crystal looks like, you'd see the atoms lined up very similarly to a grid-like layout of a city. But in a liquid, it's much more chaotic. And these cities resemble disordered atoms in a liquid. Okay, so in crystal cities like New York City and Chicago, you're going to find that they are warmer at night than different cities or even in rural areas. So they are more efficient at absorbing the heat during the day and then releasing that at night. It doesn't help matters that there's a lot of asphalt and concrete that is participating in all of that. In a more chaotic layout, it's not that the population isn't as dense, it's just that the heat is more easily released and it's not as absorbed as much as it is in a grid-like layout. Examples of a liquid city would be places like London and Dallas and Seattle. So now that they've learned this information and we know that climate change is happening and affecting our weather, that electricity is being used more as we use more air conditioning, air pollution is affecting all these things, then city planners can then make changes to how they build onto cities or establish new areas, all of that. There's no perfect formula for a city and it's very particular to a specific area and what's needed in that area. So for instance, in a warmer uh, climate, you may need to do a more chaotic uh, city layout, but in somewhere that's more cold or chilly, you might want to use more of a grid layout. When I started thinking about all of this with respect to the idea of temperature, then it still brought me back to some of the ideas from the previous episode. The idea of doing something different with architecture, of doing something more organic, of not sticking with the expected, whether it's a grid layout of of the city or the square block of a building. And particularly what I mean is bringing more greenery into things. I have experienced and I've heard other people talk about as well, when you stay in a home that might be older but has been built in such a way that it has large trees around it or like it was designed to to deal with the elements 
differently than newer construction. So it doesn't rely on having to use a lot of air conditioning or a lot of, of heating because it has the benefit of either large trees to protect it from the wind or large trees and shrubbery to protect it from the sun. And that's really a simple idea, right? That's not even talking about using greenery on the building in any way or part of the building in any way. That's not talking about incorporating solar into the windows. Anyway, reading this article and also thinking about the things we talked about previously as well as reading what these scientists were talking about, it made me more better understand what a complex uh, problem it is or a complex task it is to develop a city plan that is precisely what that area needs, not just for the landscape, but for the people living there, for the time, and even for the future. It's not just for now. And we're talking traffic, we're talking the comfort of the people, we're talking population. Like There are so many factors to consider that, um, that I don't think I fully grasped when I was thinking about some of these things before. Now, speaking of transportation. So in that previous episode, we talked a bit about transportation. Okay, we talked a lot about transportation and specifically about an underground tunnel of some kind. What I didn't know at the time was that Elon Musk's idea for the Hyperloop also includes something called the Loop, and this is for in-the-city transportation. We have heard him talking about the Hyperloop for several years now, but this particular article came out just a week or so ago, so this is quite recent. The top speed we've heard for the Hyperloop has changed continuously, but it's now quoting that it would be 500 miles per hour, and the loop within the city would be at about 150 miles per hour. So Musk's priority right now is to focus on mass transit for pedestrians and cyclists first, and then for vehicles. In order for the Hyperloop to reach those top speeds, it needs to function within a vacuum, but the loop would not be reaching those speeds, and there's no goal for it to reach those speeds, so it does not need to function within a vacuum. Which now answers a bunch of questions I had when I saw a tweet that Elon Musk put out recently, about the time that this article came out. In fact, those series of tweets are included in this article, and it includes also this short little uh, animated clip, which shows a sort of version of what the loop might look like. Instead of having subway stations every so often, Musk wants to have these parking spot sized uh, pod stations more frequently and closer to our destinations and where we're starting from. Basically, you would get in your pod, it would go down through the ground like an elevator into the tunnel below. This is about the time when it all starts to get messy for me. I'm imagining a whole bunch of these pod-type stations down the street. How many of these pod stations 
happen on a street and how many streets have them. And then if we go below ground, how do these elevators connect with the loop or a loop? And then how do they come together or how do they move apart? And if I'm on, say, 50th and I want to go to 175th, and I'm on street and I want to go to Avenue or like, how do they make these connections and how do they get to where they want to go? Or is it more like a subway where I'm still have to get out from where my destination is and walk or like, what is he imagining? Cause he said he wants there to be more of these stations closer to our destination than subway stations. I'm just confused how, because I'm imagining all of these extra tunnels and like a a rooted tree that's knotted together (laughs) like this is it does not compute does not compute thank goodness you don't have to mess with the whole vacuum idea because then I was like how how honestly I think I am more intrigued by how the logistics of the loop are going to work than I am about the hyperloop because the, the, the logistics of, of how it actually propels itself and moves, yeah, okay, I get that. But, but making the, the rat's nest no longer a rat's nest is what I'm, I'm interested in figuring out how they're going to do that. Something else I am interested in learning about is when they start to get to the final stages of the hyperloop, Uh, a point of safety if there is an accident or a bomb goes off or something within that vacuum how are they going to save lives because even if no one is hurt or they are very minorly wounded uh, we need oxygen I almost think that it would be easier to manage if it was in a tunnel above ground or a tube above ground It would be unsightly, but it might be safer to some extent. Because whether you're above ground or below ground, you have to consider closing off the at least two ends of of a portion of this tunnel. And then you have to either blow air back in or leave it open to the elements, you know, open to the air if it's outside. I would think the machinery and the money involved in making sure that the safety mechanisms involved are in place for underground for something like that would be more expensive and more time-consuming than if they had done the the tube or the, the pipe above ground. But, but this is all premature speculation. The loop nor the hyperloop are not even not even close to becoming uh, something we use yet. I did read an article that speculated that Elon Musk is working on the Hyperloop specifically so that he can develop this for Mars and not really for Earth, and that somehow this was a problem. I could see it being a possibility that he is coming up with these ideas, developing the Hyperloop specifically for Mars, but You have to build it somewhere. You have to test it somewhere. And we are in need of these things. Mass transportation with less pollution. And we're always looking for a faster option. 
If the Hyperloop helps us here and now or in the near future, or it helps generations to come on Mars, either way, I think it's a good idea, especially if we're talking about the future of humanity. That may be a bit dramatic, and it may not. Who knows? We don't know the future, but, um, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking for other options, trying out new ideas. Going back to the scientists of the first article and the types of cities and heat, they made a really great point at that artic- end of the article, and they said, why should we care that cities are similar to crystals or liquids? Because we all have the common goal of changing the world to a better place. So whether it's city planning, the loop or the hyperloop, here or on Mars, I think we've all got a common goal of seeing humanity survive. And not just survive, but thrive. Time to break it down. Hey, Rhonda. So we had a huge transportation, uh, public transportation overhaul here in Baltimore last year. They rerouted all the buses for the first time in like over 20 years um, and brought about this new color system and things like that. And folks lost their minds. But it's better. The, the idea is the fact, uh, addressing the fact that now a lot of the jobs for people who use public transportation are no longer in the city. They are out in sort of the industrial area outside. And the idea was to connect people who lived in the city with where the jobs were happening. Namely, Amazon. We got like an Amazon warehouse and that created a lot of new jobs and that drove a lot of that so i say amazon but it's not just amazon whenever you have these sort of anchor institutional size companies many economies sort of build up around them so in baltimore we have a few anchor sort of institutions we have johns hopkins the medical center and school complex is one of the biggest employers the biggest employer then we got Under Armour, which is developing this whole new area out in Port Covington. So Johns Hopkins deals with transportation by providing its own free transportation network within the city for employees that can catch a free bus between the different parts of the, um, the university system and hospitals, et cetera. They also have this program where they have these housing incentives for people to buy homes close to where they work. And the, the Port Covington thing is a huge like political issue. The point being, um, a lot of these, the way that cities are going to be looking in the future is going to be driven by these private entities, I believe. And... Um, because cities are sort of at the mercies of the economic engines. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of people, if you're not working in those places, you don't necessarily benefit from all of those changes. Or there's some people who get excluded. It's not a purely public good. 
just think about like the Google buses that, you know, that there was a big thing about that a while ago. So I think that whatever the future of transportation is in the city, you know, we have to be careful and think about who's going to be behind it and whether the public good is really going to be served.